Hello world, this is Jeff, the host of LJ Presents. We have a special edition of the podcast. I wanted to quickly get this show out. Had the pleasure of talking to a family member of mine, great guy, my cousin, Dr. Jelani Favors. He has a PhD in African American history, and we had a nice long chat about the events that are happening across our country and how it relates to our past. It is not about looting and burning buildings. This isn't this isn't me saying that they shouldn't be happening. This is me saying that the needs of the African American here in this country is a direct result of having a literal and virtual knee to our necks. And if that happens continuously for the hundreds of years that this country has has been created, then this is the natural occurrence. This is what's going to happen. This is what happens when you don't listen to the needs of a community of people who have created businesses that have been burned down, not by looters, but by those who don't want to see another group of people succeed. And I can go back from the Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street to now, that all this is not done by other people of color just burning stuff down. It's not the complete story. So I implore you to listen, to learn, and then be active. Go out and protest, but go out and protest with a plan, with an idea, with an intent. So just to give you guys a uh, background on on Dr. Favors. He's an associate professor of history at Clayton State University in Atlanta, Georgia. He has received major fellowships in support of his research that includes an appointment as a humanities writ large fellow at Duke University in 2013. And he has he was the inaugural recipient of the HBCU, that's Historically Black College and Universities, fellowship at the John Hope Franklin Humanities Institute at Duke in 2009. In 2014, he was invited to co-teach a course entitled Citizenship and Freedom, the Civil Rights Era, alongside Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Taylor Branch at the University of Baltimore. His published work on student activism has appeared in the North Carolina Historical Review, the Review of Black Political Economy, Ted Ownby's The Civil Rights Movement in Mississippi, and Robert Cohen and David Snyder's Rebellion in Black and White, Southern Student Activism in the 1960s. In 2018, his essay entitled Race, Women, Negro Politics, and the Flowering of Radicalism at Bennett College, 1900-1945, won the R.D.W. Connor Award as the best article published in the North Carolina Historical Review for that year. In 2019, Dr. Favors released his first book entitled Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Foster Generations of Leadership and Activism. 
which was published by the University of North Carolina Press. The book has received high praise for reviewers and has reset the narrative on the legacy of black colleges as incubators of student activism. In May of 2020, Shelter in a Time of Storm was the recipient of the Lillian Smith Book Award given yearly by the Southern Regional Council and the University of Georgia Libraries to the book that possesses literary merit, moral vision, and honest representation of the South, its peoples, problems, and promises. In February of 2020, Shelter in a Time of Storm has was among five books selected as a finalist of the Polly Murray Book Prize by the African American Intellectual History Society, which is awarded annually to the top book in black intellectual history. Dr. Favor's work and research has appeared in several media outlets, including C-SPAN, The Atlantic, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and The Conversation. He earned his PhD in history from the Ohio State University, where he also earned an MA in African American Studies. He is a graduate of North Carolina A&T State University, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in History and Honors. Dr. Favor is a native of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia. This man is my cousin. He is a fellow Aggie. North Carolina A&T State University has produced some of the finest intellectuals on earth. And I'm very proud to belong to this historically black college. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you, Dr. Jelani Favors. Well, first off, I'd, uh, I want to make sure, you know, you and yours are doing fine. I know there is some, uh, there are some protesting that, that happened in Atlanta. So how's, how's everything going over there? Um, you know, we are hanging in there, man. You know, this is a, a very explosive moment. It, and, and it seems as though, as you mentioned uh, just a, a few seconds ago, when you and I were just in conversation that, you know, this is something that we've seen before. This is something that we've lived through before. Um, and it seems as though we never really learned as a nation, um, but we're doing fine. Um, and and, it, and now it, this is all compounded by the fact that we're also in the midst of a pandemic, you know? So, yeah. um, you know, we, we are held up here in our home. We are still social distancing. We are still trying to be safe. I am married to an epidemiologist. So <laughs> you know, I, I can't hear the professional wisdom um, yeah. from her on how uh, we need to address these issues in a pandemic. But Again, this is all now kind of compounded to dealing with the pandemic, but also dealing with systemic racism as we constantly have done um, for years. So, um, but now we see yet another round of explosive insurrection of people taking to the streets, of people um, sick and tired of being sick and tired, as Fannie Lou Hamer once said. So, exactly. So we're, exactly. we're hanging in there, man. Thanks for asking. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. No problem. Uh, it, it was it was really great to see some of the artists uh, slash activists like, you know, I know Killer Mike has been taking, you know, the front stage for a while as well as a uh, TI. Mm -hmm. And, and I just, you know, I like going back and, you know, when we were all younger, it's just really great to see how, you know, you know, the, these men, you know, have starting to take, you know, the leadership and opening up businesses and giving food uh, to their community and how Atlanta is like this this beacon of hey this is what the black community can do once we 
you know, come together and coalesce and create businesses and jobs and be able to take care of one another. And it's not about, you know, I, I see online, I read statements online where, you know, they talk about, well, you know, if, if black people's, you know, really love their, their homes, they wouldn't burn it to the ground or they wouldn't uh, desecrate their businesses or, 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 or what have you. And, and some of these are, are black folks that are, that are saying it, that are, conservative and not like not like the conservatives of of reconstruction we're talking like you know trump conservatives or or what have you who still who still claim that you know the trump administration isn't racist and it's 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 hilarious because even though you you see even though you may see or hear him talk about you know condolences with the with the floyd uh, family, or you may, you know, hear that his, you know, him signing like, you know, million, uh, a few hundred million dollars that's supposed to be going towards HBCUs or what have you. You're like, huh, that's weird. Well, if you're so progressive to the black community, why are you dog whistling? Like it's, it's, right. it's a ridiculous contradiction that has just stumped me for quite some time. Right. Yeah. Well, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, you know, Trump is a carnival barker, um, and he knows how to um, entertain. He knows how to hold people's uh, attention, um, and he knows how to put up a front. And I, I think this is what we have seen with his uh, pandering to the black community. I think it's sadder to see that there are some folks who actually um, fall for it. <laughs> There's some folks who actually, you know, I, I've heard a number of folks who, um I respected, or perhaps should I say, once respected, um, parroting his uh, his words, his his uh, ideas. Oh, Trump really stands for the black community. Trump is giving us the tools that we need to uh, construct uh, um, uh, on black independence and and and, and black economic uh, empowerment. Um, but yet, you don't really understand the legacy and the history of this man and how it's so deeply rooted uh, in racist ideology. Um, in race, in embracing and practicing um, uh, racist policies uh, within his real estate, uh, and then there's the rhetoric. Um, the rhetoric is just so chock full with um, both undertones and dog whistling, as well as just overt, in-your-face racism. Uh, right. And so, you know, we have to be smarter. We have to be keen. We have to be able to. Um, cut through that to see that and to understand who this man is, who he represents, uh, and, and to demand better um, from ourselves, um, but also to demand better from those who say they are here to um, uh, protect and serve, as well as those who say they're here to uh, enact policy on our behalf. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it and this this whole thing couldn't have happened at. I guess at a worse time for lack of, you know, better way of uh, saying it, like we're, we're in an election year. So, you know, we have one person claiming, if you don't know the difference between Trump and I, then you ain't black, you know, that's Joe Biden. And then you have, you know, you know, president Donald Trump saying, if, if you start looting, we start shooting, that's like straight back, you know, to the sixties, which is like, You like someone said someone said that to you or you knew that 
you knew that that was going to have a, a particular type of response. So why would you say something like that? I, I don't, I, I'm not too concerned with politics per se between these two, you know, the presumptive nominee and the current administration. But I do want to point out that these two people go way back in regards to the actions that they've, you know, done between creating the crime bill, pushing it, having it signed, you know, that's like in the 90s. And then you can go back further in the 80s with the Reagan and the crack epidemic and how that came to be, how it's been proven that the CIA was a part of, um, of, you know, of bringing crack cocaine into the black community, you know, and causing that epidemic within, within our community. So it's all of these, you know, events, you know, and we can, I can even go back further. And this is stuff that I've said before, like with Nixon signing, you know, making marijuana schedule one drug, right. Mm -hmm. You know, to incarcerate, you know, white hippies and black, you know, black folk. Right. So the, the thing that, that frustrates me the most, I would say, is that there is a lack of knowledge that this country or the citizens of this country, and I know I'm being general, that they're not using their God, you know, their gifts of being able to think and go back and, and, and see, okay, all of these things have happened in the past, which is bringing us to where we are right now, where Minneapolis, you know, people, you know, uh, trashed what what the first floor of cnn or something like that mm-hmm. and, and honestly i'm kind of like i don't want atlanta to to go up like like minneapolis but at the same time i'm like cnn has been a part of of telling the news in such a way that when a black man or woman gets killed by the police after the second or third day it comes up well you know this person here, you know, will take a, what, Tamir Rice. Well, he, you know, police said that he had a, he had a gun, what looked to be a toy gun. You know, that gives the image of, mm-hmm. you know, black boys with guns, you know, huh. right? Huh. Yeah. Like, yeah. You just go down the line and every person that's been killed, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, you know, he did like one bad thing, you know, when he was a kid or when he was a, a younger adult. You know, and so, and then the right, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to keep, I'm trying to remain calm. Like, I, I honestly was done when I woke up Friday morning and they arrested a CNN reporter mm-hmm. <laughs> on live TV. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's no, crazy. I, yeah. And, and I, I think we have to be very clear because um, you started off mentioning uh, kind of contrasting um, and juxtapositioning uh, Biden and, and Trump. Uh, let's be very, very clear for, for your listeners. Uh, both white conservatism and white liberalism have worked against black folks historically. Uh, and, and that's a historical fact. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to suggest, you know, to, to, get, to develop sort of a false equivalency. I do right. That, that black folks are better served and have been better served by liberal policies, right? Uh, because, I mean, the very 
definition of conservatism is the idea that you don't want transformation. You don't want change. Um, you want to keep the status quo. And that has never worked for Black folks. You, <laughs> if anyone has been in desperate need of new policy and new changes and progression, it's Black people. Uh, right. But we also have to be able to hold people accountable both Republicans and conservatives and Democrats and liberals, and specifically, again, white Democrats and white Republicans and white conservatives <laughs> and white. Hello. Uh, and so that has to be a, a, at the forefront of our mind as, as black folks are out here, once again, engaging in insurrection, once again, um, declaring their humanity, once again, declaring that America live up to these principles. Um, we have to make sure um, that those who have who've, who've sworn to try to uh, vilify us and to criminalize us, uh, that they be held accountable, but also those who claim to be our friends, but yet do not take action when they have the opportunity to take action, that they also be held accountable. Um, so moving forward, Jeff, um, you know, this is going to take, we have to be able to, to, to channel this energy, um, to channel this frustration, um, to bring about historic and significant change within our community. One of the things that I was commenting to one of my good friends last night is that, uh, you know, people think that that, that Rosa Parks, um, you know, was, was we often forget that Rosa, people want to say, oh, Rosa Parks got angry and she got frustrated and, and she sat down. But people don't realize that Rosa Parks was a seasoned activist. She was right. a veteran of this. And we have right. to be able to channel that anger and, and place it in a space um, that can be constructive, in a space that can be deliberate, uh, in a space that can can think our way through our issues and our problems and plan. I don't have a problem with folks engaging in insurrection. I don't have a problem um, with folks lashing out, even if that sometimes spills out into violence, because I get it. I understand that Black folks have been invisible for so long. We have been uh, uh, degraded for, for, for so long. And so who who are, are others to tell us how we should engage in protests, how our anger should look, how our anger should sound, right? It's up to those who are in power to understand um, that, look, we have failed. We have failed in, in bringing out, uh, uh, bringing forth policies uh, to support and to assist um, those who have played a critical role in building and shaping and advancing this nation. And Black folks are sick or tired of it. Black folks are, are, are upset. We've lost patience. Uh, and this is what you see out here in the streets. But, but what, again, I'm suggesting is that we have to be able to channel that into constructive policy, constructive action, constructive organizations um, that are very much geared towards uh, pushing the Black community forward socially, politically, and economically. Right, right. Yeah, uh, you're you're definitely right in regards to in regards to how a, a quote unquote liberal you know agenda will be for you know our community on on a federal level, um, and, and also I think that on a on a more local level you know because I my opinion I think 2020 is a wash. I think this um, I I 
think, and this is just my opinion, I think Donald Trump is going to get reelected just because of everything that's been, you know, shaping out throughout the course of this particular, you know, between the pandemic and he's just fucked up on so many times with that. But then also with with the rhetoric that he's going to start ramping up, you know, like he's going to start uh, talking about Joe Biden's past. He's going to start doing this, that or the other. But regardless of that. And, I and, think, and yeah, Jeff, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I would say that he does that because he knows that that will energize his base. Yeah. He, before, he's a master carnival barker. He knows <laughs> what he to say in order to entertain and inflame his his supporters, right? Th- those, yeah. that basket of deplorables that Hillary Clinton mentioned years ago <laughs> when she was running. He knows how to inflame them and how to get them fired up. But this is my point is that mm. now we see black folks fired up and we have to yeah. channel that energy, channel that frustration and take it to the polls, right? right? And when I say polls, let's be very clear because this is where we often make the critical mistakes, particularly within the black community, is that these federal elections, the presidential elections are critically important, but we have to engage in political literacy like Septima Clark argued, like Ella mm-hmm. Baker argued. We have to mm-hmm. engage political literacy and learn how to look locally, right? Yep. To look at the local level and understand who we are putting in positions of power at the local level who can bring about immediate change locally in Atlanta, in Oakland, in Baltimore, in, in Detroit, in Houston, in these communities that are now engaging in insurrection, we have to hold local people accountable. And this is where true transformation and true change is going to happen. Don't get me wrong. It scares me when you say you think Trump is going to win because that would be catastrophic for I, yeah. <laughs> our communities. Uh, uh, I mean, especially when we start talking about Trump's Ability to appoint federal judges, um, to appoint Supreme Court nominees, um, to, to, to put in place people who will impact policy directly, right? Yeah. Who, who will impact our judicial system directly. This is where Trump's biggest legacy, and I think the legacy of this Republican Senate, is really going to be, and that is putting people at the federal level, district judges, uh, um, again, Supreme Court nominees, uh, this is going to have a long, once, even if Trump is gone, right, either either in November or in the next four years, right, and again, I'm praying it's not in the next four years, <laughs> in November, but if this, this man has already placed a critical stranglehold on, on, on the federal level in terms of placing uh, um, nominees, federal court nominees in positions where they're going to, these are lifetime appointments. Yeah. And, and so it can last for generations in terms of their impact of, uh, of supporting conservatism, of, of enacting policy, which is going to harm poor black and brown communities. And this is where we have to galvanize. This is where we have to take that energy, take it to the polls, looking at both the local and federal levels and understanding that this is chess. It's not checkers. Yeah. 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 No, we're, we're definitely saying the same thing. I, and I try not to have such a bleak, you know, outlook, you know, 
I'm just looking back at, you know, the things that happened back in 2016. And when those events shook down, that's when I was like, all right, strap ourselves in. Like he's going to, he's going to, Oh yeah. He's going to be the guy, you know? And then you're definitely right in regards to the black community needs to really focus on local politics. You know, you're right. And, and honestly, that's like 2016 was when I really started paying attention. Like, you know, I knew, you know, I'd read what's going on in the news or what have you, but it really didn't hit me until I started going back and started going back through, you know, history as far as like what the Democratic Party is doing, what the Republican Party has been doing. Like I literally read everything that Donald Trump has done, everything that Hillary Clinton has done, everything, you know, like, you know, Kamala Harris, you know, back then. Bernie Sanders, all that stuff, you know, everybody pretty much knows me. I'm a huge Bernie supporter, but even now, right. Even, you know, now uh, I am personally at the point where it's like, you know what, the federal level is so far away right now. Like it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't affect me locally. It affects me, but it doesn't affect me locally in the here and now at the present moment. So I think our energies do need to, you know, you know, we need to figure out what's going on at a local level so that, you know, people who who uh, who want to be policemen aren't just trying to have a power trip, you know, and, and, and just so I can put this in. Like, I want you to not necessarily visualize, but, you know, right after, you know, the series of events that happened in Minneapolis, I was driving home from work and I drove by. You know, this is between like literally between Oakland and Berkeley, uh, California. You know, I saw this one African-American woman. She was very erratic or, or what have you. And there were four police men, uh, people, four officers uh, surrounding her. They weren't like they weren't trying to approach her. They stood there very calmly. They stood there with their hands on their on their um on their utility belts or what have you, and they listen to her, right? Mm-hmm. And and we're and 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 actually, and and when I drove by, like it was a very quick glance, but it was like one black woman officer, the white officer, and, and what have you, and they just stood there, and they listened. And and mind you, it, it it was refreshing, you know, to see. Like I didn't feel as if I needed to pull the car and just wait a few to see what was going to happen. Cause usually, you know, that's what I do. You mm-hmm. know, if I'm outside of Oakland and, and Berkeley, uh, now Oakland's got their, got a huge problem with their police force or what have you. But, you know, Berkeley seems to, you know, be pretty good. You know, I, you know, one of my son's friends, you know, dad, stepdad is, is a police officer. I talked to him, you know, a lot of what have you. And so, you know, it just seems as if they're not like chomping at the bit to shoot someone. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I know there are, you know, occasions when, you know, that's not the case, but it hasn't like I haven't heard of, of it. Rather, you know, whether it's like some true assailant, you know, what have you. So, yeah, I don't know. I run off on a tirade. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about now. But, <laughs> but, no, you're good. I mean, yeah. I, it just, yeah. Just real quickly, man, I just wanted to kind of highlight something that you mentioned, because, again, mm-hmm. I think it's so critically important 
moving forward? Because you, it's a very simple phrase that you uttered a few minutes ago when you were talking about your political allegiances and what was transpiring on the political level on a and on a national level. And that is that you said that you read, right? Very, yeah. simple. you said that you read about you read up on. Hillary Clinton, you read up on Biden. You've been reading. You you read up clearly on on Bernie Sanders. But you said that you you read, and I think this is where the black community, in particular, we have to emphasize political literacy. Right? We have to be aware of the local issues. We have to be aware of the federal issues and the state issues. And political literacy is so is waning right now. Right. People would rather get their information in sound bites. People would rather be told what to think. People would rather easily just it's easy to like something, to retweet something, to follow yeah. someone. Uh, and I think that social media is has been very powerful and very effective. But I think it's also been very destructive in our abilities to generate political literacy and critical thought within this country. And, and I think that is important. So two major things that I think that we have to think about moving forward is political literacy, but also political accountability. Right. right. Once, once we've learned what these issues are, once we've spread that learning to 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 disenfranchise and, and disaffected people uh, and marginalized people and inform them what these what these issues are to help them understand what these issues are, as so many of the civil rights activists and other people uh, did in, in the 50s and 60s, then we have to hold people accountable that we put into office to let them know that we're watching. And if they don't do their jobs, remove them. And replace them with someone who's going to be accountable, who's going to say, look, I'm going to ride the wave of those folks who who brought me here. Right. And, and black folks have put into power over over the last several generations a number of people who have not been accountable to us. And I think this is what the frustration has been. And I've seen yeah. it. I've seen it play out. Uh, uh, on, on a national stage here in the last couple of months in particular, I think this is why so many people are saying, hey, you know what, I'm not going to vote Democratic. You know, there is no change um, going on. It's because they feel abandoned, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Ralph, like Ralph Ellison said, we're, we're talking about invisible men, invisible women, right? And, 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 and this is what has bothered and angered the Black community for so long, is that even when we put people into these positions, we don't see effective policy change, right? We still see black men and black women being locked up. We still see black men and black women being killed on the streets. We still see uh, the ravages of systemic racism and systemic poverty impacting our communities. And we don't see a deliberate and specific plan to deal with that. Right. And, and so we have to hold people accountable at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level and put people in place who say, look, for, for hundreds of years in this country, we've exploited, we've degraded, we've taken advantage of African-Americans uh, and their labor um, and, and, and their talents. Um, but we have failed to truly invest. We have failed to truly make uh, 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 right all of the wrongs. Um, that have been committed against Black folks, right? And, and so I think this is these are the type of things that we have to be critically aware of as we think about who we're voting for, as we think about 
what the political landscape is going to look like moving forward. Uh, and, and I agree that we have to put progressive people in these offices who are going to ensure um, that, that Black folks and our, our problems and our issues, which are very distinct uh, to people of color, um, that, they, that they get addressed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. Okay, so I've, and because I don't want to actually call out uh, someone just because I have not engaged, you know, with them, like I keep going back and forth in regards to wanting to bring in, you know, someone and talk to them about how they feel, you know, like how on a federal level, what Trump is doing for them or, or what have you. And, and some of these are, are black folks that, that are true Trump, you know, supporters. So I want to paraphrase a few things that have been said. And then, you know, I just, you know, want, want your comment on it here. So black lives matter on racist actions versus black lives matter on black on black crime. So in other words, it's, oh, well, if black lives matter, so, you know, hyped up on, you know, whites committing crimes against, you know, black folks, you know, white police officers killing black men and women, or what have you. Uh, why don't you, why don't you do something with black on black crime? So, I mean, black folks <laughs> get angry all the time at black on black crime. <laughs> <laughs> and that was often, you know, left out of that, that common, uh, 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 that common uh, position that you just suggested, that you just uh, threw out there, is that black folks get really angry at, at black on black crime. But here's the issue with this whole black on black crime angle, right? Is that we never really talk about white on white crime. We never really talk about Asian on Asian crime. We don't talk about Latino on Latino crime because people often engage in criminal activity against those who they live closest to and those that they are in, in, in um, a connection with. White people rob white people all the time. Right. Latino people rob Latino people all the time. Right. And here's and black people certainly rob and hurt and kill black people all the time. The only problem with this is that black folks are typically held accountable for that. Right. This people if, if a black man goes out and arrests and, and, and uh, uh, shoots another black man or breaks into another black man's home, they typically get arrested for it. They typically get prosecuted for it. Right. They typically serve time for it. Right. And, and, and our jails are, are certainly reflective and full uh, of black folks who um, who have engaged in those type of crimes. Right. But the issue is and historically, the issue has always been is that there is a tiered system. And for a white person to engage in, in crimes against humanity, to engage in, in crimes against black folks, um, it has often been the case um, that those crimes get overlooked, that those crimes go unprosecuted. Uh, and, and this is the heartbeat and the essence of what people mean when they say black lives matter, right? Is that historically black lives have never mattered as it relates to um, how white people often interact with us. They've been given license historically going back hundreds of years to trample, to, 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 to deride, to disrespect. Uh, you know, I echo the, 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 the commentary of, of Chief Justice Robert B. Taney from the Dred Scott case, 
who in <laughs> Fifty Seven said a white a black man has no rights upon which a white man is bound to respect. Right? This is what he said in eighteen fifty seven, and yeah. we've seen that play out on our political scene and, and our and our local lives and our daily experiences for the next one hundred and fifty years. Right? Is that we 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 feel this? We know this to be true. Is that white America has almost a license to to deride us, to ignore us, um, to to degrade Black humanity, and it's never brought to light, right? Uh, it's never dealt with accordingly. It's never dealt with fairly, right? And so, yes, Black folks absolutely we get upset with one another when we rob one another, when we kill one another, when we steal one another, and we protest this. Right. We protest this. We call for transformation and change. Right. But we also want to see transformation and change when it comes to systemic poverty. Right. When it comes to systemic racism, when it comes to white supremacy um, being institutionalized within our schools. Right. Within our politics, within our health care. Right. Uh, and, and to root that out. Right. And, and so, you know, yeah, I mean, I get it. I, I get it. Hey, you know, how do we also address the community? I mean, the crimes that are existing within the black community that black folks perpetrate. We do that all the time. Right. But what we don't see taking place is that when white America has a license and, and a green light to deride us and to dismiss us and to destroy us. Where is the criticism? Where is the backlash against this? And this is what I think you see spilling out now over into our streets in terms of these this insurrection, this anger, this frustration, is that yet once again, black lives don't matter to white America. Right, right. Ah damn, that was just like whoo. That was that was on point. Um playing the victim card. We need to stop playing the victim card. Oh, systemic racism. Oh, it's always systemic racism. Stop playing the victim card. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mind you, we can go back to uh, where Dr. King, uh, God, I don't, I keep forgetting where he was at, but he, he made a speech in regards to, you know, I talk to white people all the time. They keep saying, well, how come you don't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? I was like, well, get your, get your, you know, I'm paraphr- I'm not paraphrasing. I'm like, well, get your knee off of my neck. And I will, you know, (laughs) you know, I can do this, but you keep knocking me two or three steps back. Right. Right. So uh, what do you got to say about that? So, I mean, again, we talk about political literacy. This is where history um, really has to be understood Um, for all those who are going to listen to this podcast. uh, There's a plethora of of literature um, that I could encourage you to pick up. Um, but people really need to become familiar with this book entitled When Affirmative Action Was White. Uh, and the author's name slips me now, but um, I've assigned it several times to, to my classes, um, both at Morgan State when I taught in Baltimore, as well as at Clayton State, where I teach now um, here in Atlanta. Uh, but When Affirmative Action Was White lays out the historic case, um, especially, and, and it really kind of dismisses and, and uh, completely obliterates this argument that Black folks just simply need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. White folks have been given 
so many opportunities, so many investments, both at uh, whiteness itself is an investment, right? I mean, to, to be white in this country has often meant access. It's meant upward mobility. It's meant to, to be able to carve a path forward without any type of barriers or any type of, uh, when I say barriers, I'm talking about social, political, and economic barriers being put in your way. White, whiteness, we gave whiteness a meaning. When I say we, I mean the United States of America when we began to embrace whiteness as a concept. And again, the, we're talking about to the 1600s, the 1500s. Right. When race was first actually created. Right. Race is a social construction and it was created for a reason and it empowered a certain people. Right. And what that did going forward, it meant that to be white and specifically to be white and male and even more specifically to be white, male and rich meant that you (laughs) had access, meant that you had political voice, meant that you were seen, that you were visible. And what and moving forward, what happened? Poor white folks, poor white men in particular said, hey, we want a piece of that. Right. And that brought us what the Jacksonian era, Andrew Jackson in the 1830s talked about the era of the common man. And then it was time for the common men, i.e. white men, right, poor white men, illiterate white men, that, that this was their country, too. Right. And so they were empowered. Right. And, and, and moving forward into the 1850s, 1840s, what do we see? We begin to see the Irish immigrants point over. We begin to see later on Italian immigrants and Jewish immigrants right, pouring over and folks from Scandinavia. And one of the things that all of these people had in common, ironically, is that they weren't perceived as white enough. And they faced various forms of discrimination. The Irish were discriminated against. The Italians were discriminated against. The Jews were discriminated <laughs> yeah. against. Now, now, here's where, and the Asians were discriminated against, right? Check out the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, all of those people were discriminated against. Now, here's where Black folks stand apart, is that all of those groups, Asians included, were ultimately able to work their way into whiteness. Right. Jews became white. The Irish became white. The Italians became white. Right. And that empowered them. Right. It provided opportunity and access for them. And one of the first things that really kind of brought those groups together was their ability to say that black folks were inferior. Right. I mean, I started about this. So my book is entitled Shelter in the Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Fostered Generations of Leadership and Activism. And in the very first chapter, when, when the Institute for Colored Youth, right, which ultimately became Cheney State University, was founded in Philadelphia, I start yeah. off in that first chapter highlighting the fact that one of the biggest enemies that black folks had in the, in the city of Philadelphia were Irish immigrants, right, who hunted black folks in the streets, who there were various rounds of race riots that occurred, right? And so moving forward, right, from the 19th into the early 20th centuries, you began to see whiteness even more so having meaning, right? We created a tiered system, and that system was basically predicated upon the ideas of white supremacy, that if you're white, you get access. If you're white, you get empowerment. We're going to deliberately invest into you. The federal government opened up lands 
West, which meant now that Native Americans were going to be hunted and killed even more so than they had been, which brings us to the Plains Wars of the 1880s and 1890s, right? They, They were massacred for what reason? In order to make way for whiteness, for America to expand further westward. They were encouraged. They were enticed to come west. Go west, young man. Go west, right? And and so as they did that, they did so in knowing that their whiteness gave them authority. Their whiteness gave them access. Their whiteness made them American, right? And Mm -hmm. black folks that entire time are sitting on the sidelines, screaming like Langston Hughes would once say in, in, in one of my favorite poems, we too sing America, right? That, that we can't be cut out, right? That we demand access to, right? But what is the history and legacy of the 19th and 20th centuries? The history and the legacy of the 19th and 20th centuries is about African-Americans being deliberately denied that access, being deliberately denied the American dream, being systemically denied political, economic, and social empowerment and fighting for all of that, right? Organizing, right? Mobilizing, creating movements to demand access. All the while, white folks are being invested in, right? And this is where that book, When Affirmative Action White Was White, really kicks in. When I say invested in, Jeff, I mean literally federal programs, Right, the the, the New Deal, (laughs) Social Security, the GI Bill. Right, when we see when when World War II comes to an end in 1945, and we see an an explosive expanding of the middle class in America, that's not the black middle class, that's not the Latino middle class, that's the white middle class. And why does it expand? Why does it explode? Because they were deliberately invested into. And this is why people are screaming reparations today, because black folks were never given that type of access. We're never given that type of uh, of of investment. Right. They were routinely denied it, routinely discriminated against. And this is part of our history that we don't teach, that we don't understand. And so it becomes easy to say, if you're, if you're not taught that, if you don't understand the legacy and the history of how white America empowered itself and enfranchised itself and expanded and, and became more and more uh, uh, economically uh, uh, strengthened and politically strengthened during this time period, it's very easy for you and ignorant of you to sit there and say, hey, black folks, pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. Why is it that you aren't? you know, moving forward? Why is it that you aren't building in your communities? It's easy to say that if you don't know the history and legacy of, of how white supremacy is deeply integrated into the banking system and how black folks were routinely denied capital loans to improve their homes and their communities and their businesses, right? And so you can look at the hood and say, oh, it's, it's horrible, it's torn down, but you don't know why the hood is there in the first place. Right. You don't know how and why the hood was created. So again, this, we, don't, we can't just have political literacy. We have to have historical literacy as well. People have to understand the history, the true history of our nation and what whiteness truly means in America and how it has very much created a tiered system. Right? And at the bottom of that tier has always been black folks. 
Yeah. Okay. So it's really funny that um, not funny, but you know, when when you talked about the first chapter of your book, you know, I I was reading a couple of blurbs and it was just ironic, rather, like it reminded me the story that 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 you were telling in your first chapter reminded me of a uh, Crispus Attucks, right? You know, yep. a little bit like there there was a gentleman uh, that the black community called Professor. To be called Professor was mm-hmm. an esteemed title, yeah. And he was shot. He was shot and killed by a white man basically because he was too smart and he didn't know his place, and they needed to make sure that the black citizens in their community didn't get knowledge period whether Mm -hmm. it's knowledge of self uh general knowledge to be able to go out into the world and be a productive member of society or or what have you and i was like god i was like damn it it, like you can't even like you can't even learn well we know that but Mm -hmm. you know being kept from reading you know for certain slaves or what have you to actually getting out after you know civil war reconstruction blah 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 to okay well let's start teaching each other let's start building a community you know we see that tulsa tulsa oklahoma with mm-hmm. you know, with the riots you know not, you know they burned a city down because black folks couldn't be prosperous i i want to say that i uh read somewhere that that town was actually in talks of doing trades with china irony but you know they were actually starting to you know, stretch out and to start to do businesses with other parts of the world. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But in, but, and I say all of that for systemic racism as a, uh, as an excuse. Oh, wait a minute. Let me, let me, let me see my notes here. Oh, so another uh, comment would be systemic racism isn't the reason why black and brown businesses don't don't prosper. It's uh, looting and pillaging. Now, mind you, <laughs> yeah, I know, man, I know. My, <laughs> now, mind you, you know, you already touched briefly on uh, black business owners not being able to get loans every now and again, right? Like the percentages of black businesses not getting loans are huge, right? Especially in regards to whether it's a bailouts, whether it's, you know, there are a release of funds to, you know, kickstart, you know, small businesses or what have you. I bet you the percentages of, you know, black, small, you know, businesses getting those loans are very few. Oh, yeah. I mean, without question, yeah. you know, I mean, <laughs> when, when you touch on, I mean, Tulsa is, is the tip of the iceberg, you know, I mean, it's. Again, you know, how far do you want to go down that that rabbit hole? I mean, that that's <laughs> right. And and in terms of learning our true history, right? You know, I tell my students all the time, you know, that American history can best be understood through two really basic concepts. Um, that's paradox and perspective. Right? Perspective. What would your American history textbook look like if Native Americans wrote it? Right. What would it look like if black folks wrote it? What would it look like if women wrote it? Perspective matters, right? And, and too long in this country, people have don't want to hear, don't want to know the perspective, the experiences of marginalized people within this country. Right? And the other word is paradox. 
A paradox simply is a contradiction. And America has been a walking contradiction since, since 1787, right? Since, since our constitution was first enshrined, which since it was first embraced that we were going to be a nation uh, of, 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 for liberty and justice for all, right? The man who wrote those words owned over 300 slaves. So how do we deal with that paradox? How do we deal with that contradiction? And, and Black folks have dealt with it by struggling, by surviving, by building, um, by building Black institutions, right? And, and not just, when I say Black institutions, I don't mean just colleges, businesses, right? And, and we have been successful, right? But that success has always threatened white America, right? When you look at the, the legacy and the history of many of these race riots that occurred, whether it's the Red Summer of 1919, whether it's, it's Black Wall Street and, and what occurred in Tulsa, uh, um, you know, whether it's you know, black folks, you mentioned, you opened up with the story of Octavius Cattle, who I talk about in the first chapter of my book. You know, white people have always been threatened by black excellence, right? So my next book actually looks at the Fraser Baker case in 1898 in Lake City, mm. South Carolina. Who's um, that? Well, Fraser Baker was a, he was a black postmaster. Um, and, and he was not just a black postmaster. He was a locally, he was a black teacher. He was an organizer with uh, uh, the Colored Farmers Alliance, working with black farmers uh, because there was a national farmers alliance, but they didn't let black folks in. So we had to have our own, the Colored Farmers Alliance. But he, <laughs> he was an organizer with them too, right? But they ended up, a, a white mob, descended upon Frazier Baker's house in 1898 and, and lynched this man along with his one-year-old daughter. I'll say that again. His one-year-old daughter lynched this man. And why did they lynch Frazier Baker? Not because he had threatened a white woman. Not because he had raped a white woman. Not because he was you know, a, a criminal, they, they, they lynched him because they didn't want to get their mail from a nigga. <laughs> that, that, that in itself was an example of, of, of nigger rule. We can't, he, we can't go into a, a, a black post office and have this black man waiting on us and telling us when to come forward and, and, and handling our mail. We're talking about mail. And they lynched this man and his one-year-old daughter in 1898. His family had to leave there. They fled. They ultimately, because he had, uh, he was married with six other kids, and, and they they relocated ultimately to to right outside of Boston, uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, but they lynched this man because he was an example of black excellence in 1898, and that scared the hell out of them, and they didn't want to compete. Right. The same thing is happening in the Red Summer of 1919. What's going on? Black folks are coming back from World War One. They're demanding change. They, they we've seen a great migration of black folks headed towards uh, 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 um, uh, um, urban settings where they can fight and compete for jobs. And why that scared white America. Right. Again, the same thing in, in the first chapter of my book in the 1830s and 1840s. What's going on? You have a blossoming free black community in the north. 
and they're competing for, guess what, jobs. And so this idea that black folks don't want to succeed, don't want to excel, don't want to invest in their own businesses, uh, you know, and, and this is why they fail. I mean, again, read your history, right? Know your history. And, and, and this is the problem is that too many people have uninformed opinions, right? I always tell my students, I strongly encourage all of them to have opinions. Just make, just ask yourself, what's it informed by, right? What have you read? What do you know, right? What have you learned about our true history, right? One of my my graduate professors, when I went, I went to grad school at Ohio State, and one of my grad professors used to always talk about the Disneyfication of American history. We love the Disney version. We we love we love that sweet shit, right? I mean, it makes us feel good. Right. To, 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 we love the mythology of who we are, but there are scores of Americans, I dare say the majority of Americans who do not know the true history of our nation and our country. And so it's very easy for them to become seduced by the myth of America. Right. By 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 this sort of mistaught uh, and misunderstood narrative of who we truly are because they don't know it. Right. And so it's it's easy for them to come to the conclusion that, hey, black folks simply just don't want to strive. They don't want to do well because they're lazy. I mean, they, they you literally are buying into these age old tropes and these age old uh, uh, stereotypes of black folks that were promoted during the minstrel show eras. They're, oh, they're lazy. They're coons. They're sambos. Again, all of that was strategic. All that was done in an effort to try to paint black folks in a negative image while black folks were striving to to embrace their freedom, striving to build black institutions, striving to build black businesses. And, and but again, we don't know this. Folks haven't been taught this. And it's easy for them to 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 come out and say, oh, you should just try a little harder. Damn it. Black folks been trying and, and, and not, not only have black folks been trying hard. Right. But. Black folks are the economic and and, and social foundation of this country. As I tell my students all the time, race is not a footnote in America. Race is at the very core of who we are, which means that black folks are at the very core of who we are as a nation. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) I want to make sure that the people who listen to this like this isn't just a this this is a history lesson for for everyone. You know, I just want to be very clear in that I I don't want to I don't want to have to be the one to try and explain everything for white America. I I have very good I have very good friends, you know, from all over and they know like the I'm talking I'm talking to the ones that don't know or the ones that are like, you know, tell me what I can do to help, blah, blah, blah. It's like, nah, the ones who are already down are already in the trenches doing the work. Like, they don't have to come to me. Like, they already know, right? And I kind of went back and forth, you know, about about this podcast and, and this particular format because I didn't want to try and explain anything to everyone like this was like this anger wave that that hit me it's like no 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 like i shouldn't have to explain anything to you 
You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And these are like, you know, very, these are visceral, you know, thoughts that are going through my head. And and normally, you know, what happens, I've gotten to the point and, you know, I, I, I thank my yoga practice. I talk a whole lot about, you know, practicing yoga, but before I lash out, I, I always have a moment of calm and, and peace to be able to say, okay, what is my intent before I open my mouth? <laughs> you know what I mean? Not a clue. Yeah. Yeah. And instead of lashing out with something, think about what you're saying. Think about why you're saying it. And then that, and that's been like the cornerstone. I, I would say uh, this part of my life where it's like, what is your intent? Right. Uh, above everything, like every action, every thought, you know, when people talk, when people tweet, when people make a comment online, like what is the intent mm-hmm. you know, behind that? But uh, moving on, I, I want to. And I'm very happy about this. I want to talk about the man that actually didn't die. Uh, I think his name was Christian Cooper, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. He is a, 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 a gay bird watcher who's actually a marvel he writes for marvel whether the comic books or or uh or some of the films i want to say it's just the graphic novels or or what have you but you know you have a white woman who's damn near strangling a dog telling him i'm going to call the police and i'm going to say that you are threatening me i mean that doesn't scream emmett till I don't know what does because mm-hmm. as soon as I saw that, like it took me a couple of, it took me a while to actually see it because I know, like, I know the drill. Like I know the story. Like I just mm-hmm. read, Oh, white woman calls, blah, blah, blah. And says, I was like, well, I, I know, I, I know this. So what, what am I trying to say here? I, I think what I'm trying to get to is the fact that the one that actually survived, you know, is I would say the silver lining, I would say behind, you know, the the three deaths that happened in the matter of like what two weeks mm-hmm. between Ahmad Arbery, uh Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Right. Right. It's uh it's insane to me that she would actually say that. I mean, it's not insane to me, but I want to say that the intent behind calling the police to call another to, to, to get them to come get this black man mm-hmm. with whom he simply asked, Hey, can you put the leash on your dog? Right. Anything, uh, comment about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, <laughs> these are, <laughs> you know, th- this is, we could have very well been talking about four deaths, right. You know? Um, yeah. With, with with Cooper and it almost seems as though um, many times white America um, they know how it's almost like it's embedded in their their social and cultural DNA, right? Is that she didn't say this man is harassing me? She said this African American man is harassing me. And it's almost right. as though there was a knee-jerk reaction that she knew that if she if she said African American man, that means something, right? Because it, it does and has in our society, particularly as it relates to criminality, because African American males have been criminalized 
right? Going back during to the slavery era, right? Uh, to be black meant that you were mischievous, that you were up to something, that you were lazy, that you were, uh, again, a sample or cool. You know, again, we give race meaning. And so she knew and understood that by saying black male, right, that that would mean, or at least she'd hoped that it would mean something and that that would bring about retribution for her, from her perspective, right? That, oh, the police are going to come, they know that you're a black male and that they're going to punish you in the worst ways possible, right? Which is what she's hoping, right, in that scenario, right? But you mentioned Emmett Till, right? I mean, think about this, the Emmett Till case, right? And and Tim Tyson, um, who's a professor at Duke University who had the opportunity to um, to get to know um, fairly decently uh, when I was on fellowship there, uh, but Tim Tyson wrote a book, The Blood of Emmett Till, um, which was extremely controversial um, because, and this book came out less than 10 years ago, um, because in that book, he actually interviewed Carolyn Bryant, who was mm. a white woman who uh, a- accused Emmett Till of assaulting her person, right? Scenes for, for years. And this is how it was taught when I was coming up in school and, and probably you too, Jeff, is that, oh, Emmett Till went to the store and he either whistled at a white woman or said, bye, baby. Or we, we knew he did something to break the cake of custom. He did right. something to, to, to overstep his boundaries as a black man in the segregationist South, right? And what Tim Tyson unveiled in that book after he interviewed Carolyn Bryant, is that Carolyn Bryant told him, confided in him, that none of that ever happened. Right? It was a bombshell, right? Wow. Not, not that it really took us off, off, off guard, because again, it makes perfect sense. But, but Carolyn Bryant lied. She said that she that, that Emmett Till had done something to assault her, to to offend her, and again to break that cake of custom which underpinned race relations in the South for generations uh, um, following the, the Civil War into the Jim Crow era. Um, but Emmett Till had done none of that. By her own admission, Carolyn Bryant said he didn't do anything like that. And this is what we're we're dealing with in this Cooper situation is that that white Americans know very, they know how to very easily um, go to that bag, right? To reach into that bag. Like I said before, it's almost as though it's it's coded into their 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 social, not their biological DNA, but 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 their social and cultural DNA. They they know how to blow that dog whistle, right? And in this case, it's not even a dog whistle. Right, this is a, a deliberate attempt <laughs> to criminalize a black man and to put his life in jeopardy. Right, and, and so this is where we are. This this is the America that we have lived in for so long, you know. And and you and I, Jeff, I mean, we're both um, in 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 our late forties. Uh, I'm not. Have you cracked fifty yet? I'm not even sure. Hey, 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 hey! <laughs> hey Maybe knocking on that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching the door. Okay, <laughs> on that door. You know, but but Jeff, I mean, you and I grew. We're cousins. You know, we grew up in North Carolina. Um, you know, our parents are. You know, attended North Carolina Anti State University. Um, you know, my father and your father were roommates on the college football team. Um, but but we, you and I, as, as young men 
who grew up in, in, in the South in this sort of post-segregation era, we were blessed, man. We, we were fortunate, right? Is that for the grace of God, there, there we go, right? There go I. Is that we, it, it could have been us. Yeah. That, that at any moment as a black man living in America, right, you know, it, it, you are on the, the verge, on the cusp of being swept up in, into, into imprisonment, into uh, uh, abuse, into death, into to being killed at the hands of, 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 a, of, a, of a white supremacist system. Right, it's it could very easily be any of us. I was telling the story some 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 of my friends. We were texting each other last night, and we just kind of had a a, um, a transparent moment. As this is a bunch of brothers who I'm on a text with, and one mm-hmm. of one of them said, "Hey, you know what? Have y'all ever had any experiences being harassed by the cops or roughed up by the cops?" Like, he just wanted to know, right? And I told him about my experiences when my father died, my my freshman year in college. Um, I I got the news that he had a heart attack, and I I left immediately. I was in school at North Carolina Central. I ultimately transferred to North Carolina A&T, but I got in the car, and I drove, and it was myself, and one of my friends jumped in the car, and he rode with me. And at that point, I didn't know that he had died yet, but we got pulled over uh, by a police officer. Mm-hmm. We weren't speeding. We weren't breaking any laws or any rules. Uh, when the When the police officer came, white police officer came to the car, you know, he, he just simply asked us for ID, asked us where we were going. You know, I, I told him that, you know, the situation, and I just got news that my father, uh, you know, had a heart attack and was just trying to get home and check on him. This man held me on the side of the road for almost 30 minutes for no wow. reason at all. And I, and I know that it was just to fuck with me, right? Just to, to, he knew that, I mean, it was tears in my eyes. I'm trying to get home, but it was his privilege, right? Yeah. To, 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 to exploit that pain, right? To take advantage of that. And that's a pain that black folks have and we've experienced in our hearts for years, you know? And you see it now on these social media platforms. You see people talking about, you see black women, talking about, hey, I, I'm praying for my sons. Every day I cover my sons. Every day I, I'm worried about my sons, right? You, you see people lamenting. You see people uh, um, displaying their hurt, their fear, their trepidation, right, of living in a white supremacist environment, knowing that at any moment you could be swept up in it, right? And, 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 and we were fortunate. Right? And we have all been, been victimized. We've all experienced some form of racial trauma in our lives. You know? But people like Cooper in New York or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery, right? you know, this is, or, or George Floyd. I mean, these are folks who they weren't able to escape it. Right? And, and so here we are on the other side of that. And I think the larger question has to be, not just for black people, but for freedom-loving people in this country. Is this the America that we want to live in? Is this the America that we want our children to be raised in? And if it's not, and if you find that type of, uh, of dismissal of people's humanity 
offensive, then you have to raise your voice. You have to be involved. You have to be engaged. You have to find a way to speak truth to power and to demand better right, of, of those who are in positions of power within this country um, to help us craft and create a better space that's empowering, that's just, that's equitable for all people, like we said we were going to do when we first crafted those words back in 1776. Yeah. So the one thing that's been wrapping, you know, my head was, um, and it's always been, is what can I do to help, right? That's the one thing that I've, I've been, been wondering. And in part, that's the reason, you know, I've said this plenty of times, but that's the reason why I started this podcast was because, you know, I didn't want to be a keyboard social justice warrior. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to, you know, just start flapping my gums, you know, virtually at, at everything. And that's why I started this podcast, you know, to have this. But the more and more I keep doing this, the more I'm like, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I need to figure out what else, you know, I can do. And so one of the things that I I thought of, you know, like this morning and and every now and again, we keep talking about it. And that is, and that is, we may just need to stop buying shit. Right. And, And I truly, you know, there's what blackout, Friday, like supposed to happen in July or something like that. But I mean, truly, maybe we need to stop buying Apple products. Maybe we need to stop buying cars. Maybe we need to, you know, truly focus on where our food is coming from. Maybe we need to start growing our own gardens. You know, like I remember, you know, my dad, you know, grows tomatoes and hot peppers or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. cucumbers, you know. And that's, you know, that's just a a start, right? So, you know, with integration being, you know, a double-edged sword in regards to recognizing us as human beings, but it also uh, closed down a lot of prominent Black businesses or or what have you, right? Maybe we need to, not necessarily, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not saying going back to any type of segregation, but I am saying we need to, maybe we need to start hitting them in the pockets where it hurts and really showing them that our billions of dollars that we contribute in this economy can go elsewhere easily right, right. so I, I i guess my my question is how do we go forward, you know, with that thought of economic uh, and being empowered with our own economics, right? right? How do we truly get get to that freedom to where if our money is starting to talk to someone else, then maybe some, not, I don't, I don't even want to say implemental change. I want to say like drastic course correction, you know, change. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. No, I mean, you know, that that's you know that's the million dollar question. Um and, and I say million there's all there's there's a ton of stuff that we all can do um to to bring about a more fair and equitable society. Um 
But I think the larger question is, and, and, and this is very much connected to how we bring about a, a fair and equitable society, is that how do we deconstruct white supremacy? How do we root this out of American life? Uh, and in doing so, finally build um, a country um, that truly embraces that model that we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women are created equal. All men, all women, all walks of life have an opportunity to breathe freely, right? And, and literally, pun intended, to breathe free, yeah. right? Um, and, and to finally walk in and experience uh, a country um, that legitimizes us, that sees our humanity, that recognizes our humanity and respects our humanity. Um, and there's a ton of things that we can do. Certainly, again, voting is, is I, I strongly believe in the ideas of, of social democracy. Um, you know, you mentioned Bernie Sanders. Uh, I, too, uh, embrace the idea of, of, of a socialist democracy. Uh, and, and, and so I embrace voting and political literacy in particular very, very strongly. Um, but I also believe in holding people accountable. Right. But I also believe in being informed. Right. We can form book club clubs. We can form uh, uh, a reading clubs where we dispense information uh, to folks. And, and again, as I said before, part of the problem is social, particularly with social media, we want our, our information in sound bites. We want our information very quickly and in snippets. I mean, we want it in 180 characters or less or whatever the character limit is on Twitter. <laughs> Right, you know, and, I think it's two forty. Is it two forty now? Okay. Well, I mean, you know, we 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 have to issue and to rid ourselves of that type of 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 environment, um, which doesn't embrace and provide space for true knowledge and true literacy, and that's not going to come from again liking or retweeting. Uh, you know, I, I gave a speech back in in in, uh, in January for Dr. King's uh, um, celebration of his his birthday, um, and in that speech at Clayton State University, I talked about um, the revolution will not be tweeted, which of course echoes um, Gil Scott Heron's very famous song, "The Revolution Will Not Be Televised." Um, but but we have to find a way to plug in, but also to unplug. Right. Every now and then you have to unplug and get connected with institutions, with organizations, with people who are progressive, who are freedom minded, uh, who are very much engaged in the type of work that we need to build a better America. So I'm, I'm a strong supporter of joining organizations. Uh, I, I'm a strong supporter of, of, of creating and supporting institutions um, that promote that type of change. Um, you can always call and write um, local legislature le legislators to, to to promote and to push um, a transformation of change. And going back to your earlier point in terms of of using economic power, that can and should be a way in which we enact change as well. That's always been extremely effective. You can refuse to buy from companies that use prison labor. Right. I mean, so so there are all these things that we can engage in, but we have to be informed. 
that's step one. And, and I'm just, I'm really deeply concerned that we live in an era of misinformation and it impacts both sides, right? It impacts conservatives, impacts liberals. There, again, we, we have really kind of reached a point in our society um, where intellectualism itself has become derided. Intellectualism is, is, is seen as some sort of weakness. Uh, and, and that's scary, right? To kind of live in that society. It is. I mean, where, where you know, people don't support or embrace knowledge. Uh, or, or conversely, they, they they seek knowledge and 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 deconstruct knowledge in such a way um, that it becomes more propaganda, uh, more conspiracy theory than it's actually rooted and based in truths. And and we have to strive to 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 fight and to struggle uh, to 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 embrace the truth uh, within our country. And we have to be open to that. We have to learn how to. Uh, um, build a library um, that, that that builds up and, and reflects uh, who we are as a nation, both the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, so those are some of the steps that we could take, Jeff. But but we have to again, political literacy and political accountability is, is I think, where we we have to begin. Again, it's okay to have to express that anger. It's okay to lash out. I get it. I understand it. But we also have to, and this is kind of goes back to the point I made from the start, is that we have to be able to, to learn how to be seasoned organizers and informed organizers like Rosa Parks was, like Ella Baker was, um, like Septima Clark was, uh, like so many of these activists that preceded us and how they brought about the change that they did. It wasn't overnight. It wasn't uh, 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 quick. Uh, but it was something that they understood and realized would only come into fruition if they were prepared for it. And we have to prepare ourselves. We have to to, to train ourselves, um, and, and to in order to help build and create a better vision of what it is that we want America to be. Doctor Favors, this is badass. I yeah, I, I, I appreciate yeah. you because I love you. And I yeah. really, really appreciate you having me on this podcast, man. It's always great to chop it up with you, man. Uh, a real quick note to your listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Ward, what you about to say. <laughs> you know, Jeffrey Ward is one of the true badasses in our family, man. I remember, you know, coming to North Carolina a and 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 going and seeing you when you were uh, uh, doing plays at a and and that was so inspiring. Uh, to me, man, as a kid, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to train. I ultimately transferred from North Carolina Central, North Carolina A and T, and 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 I, you were always a conscious brother. You were always uh, a, a very smart brother, man, and I appreciated you for that, and it inspired me, man. True, from 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 the bottom of my heart, I've always been happy to be and 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 um, um, blessed to be able to say that I come from a family of folks who are, are really conscious. And 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 uh, you and I know a lot of the cats used to hang with it in college. Um, you know, you kind of showed that to me. You showed me what could be and what should be in terms of being a progressive, uh, conscious political thinker, man. So you 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 helped sow some of those seeds. And I'm not sure if I've ever said that to you or not, but but you really did. Uh, man. So thank you. I appreciate your talents, brother. I appreciate your skill and your dedication to trying to help us build a better better world as well. Oh man, that that's uh, I'm humbled. Thank you very much, uh, Giovanni. I, I really appreciate that, man. So, um, so where where can people find you? 
and where can people get your book? Um, I the book is uh, everywhere books are sold. I hate to say that, but we're all, <laughs> all books are sold. Amazon, um, it's out on UNC Press, uh, so you can also go to UNC Press uh, website. I think it's forty percent off right now on their website, but Amazon, Walmart, Target, where, wherever books are sold, Barnes and Nobles, uh, wherever wherever it's sold. Man, I'm on Instagram uh, at um, dr Jelani Favors. Uh, and that's it. I'm not on Twitter, not on, not on Facebook. <laughs> you know, Facebook. I, literally, my friends twisted my arm about a year ago and said, "Look, you can't have a book out here and not be on social media." So, so they created my, yeah. my social media page and and put me on because, again, as I said before, I've always had these deep concerns about the impact of social media. But since I've been on there, you know, I, I see the positives and I see the negatives. Uh, and it's good to see right now, especially in this chaos that we're living in uh, currently, um, to see people using their platform to to push positive thinking, man. So that's one of the things yeah. I try to do. So again, you can follow me at, at Dr. Jelani Favors on Instagram. Right, right. And the name of the book is uh, Shelter in a Time of Storm. Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Fostered Generations of Leadership and Activism. And I think that for, for those readers who, um, you know, are interested in, in taking out, uh, checking out the book, I, I think it's important for us to consult our, our past, right, to see how other folks did it and how they approached it. And I think what they've really left us with is a blueprint on how to learn from their mistakes, but also how to continue to build. And, and that's one of the things that I really appreciate about um, the institution that I graduated from. Uh, and you graduated from is that we have a long legacy of HBCUs in general, historically black colleges and universities in general, of promoting critical thought uh, and more importantly, promoting social and political change. And, and, And so when you learn about the history and legacy of how HBCUs really cultivated that, Uh, and very much generated race consciousness and idealism within so many young people for generations, going back again to the first HBCU in 1837, even now to 2020. uh, It's something that can give us hope. It's something that, again, when I think about the future, when I think about these struggles um, that we're confronting and dealing with, um, it's going to continue to take the push of young people, enlightened and informed young people to really help show us the way. And so uh, I thank God for HBCUs for really kind of being um, that catalyst within the black community and, and not just in the black community, but that catalyst on a national scene and how had it not been for black colleges, perhaps the modern civil rights movement would have never come into fruition. So institutions show. are critically important, man. We have to continue to support them as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I can't, I, in closing, I can't, you know, thank, you know, my parents enough, you know, for, for sending me, you know, to A&T, just, just for the simple fact that, you know, if I had gone to any other college, I wouldn't be used on stage. Like I would be, I would literally be, and we're talking like early nineties, like I would literally be like either the best friend or, you know, walk on stage for a couple of lines and then jump off. Right. Like I've always promoted uh, to black students or any other person of color for that matter, like go to an HBCU. You're right. going to be used. You're going to learn about your plays, your playwrights. You're going to be engaged in a matter that you've never, you've never experienced before. Right. Then when you get out, you go, you just pick any graduate school, you know, you'll have your base, 
right? Like I, I'm still surprised that, you know, when I, when I walk around and I interact with different people and I mention something that happened in the past, you know, I get that, huh? Right. Right. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm sorry. You didn't go to a black college. Okay. So <laughs> let me, you know, <laughs> right. let, let me unpack this. <laughs> right. No, no, no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, definitely like, you know, with my son, you know, uh, he's named after Benjamin Banneker. His name yeah. is Banneker. Yeah. Banneker. So whenever he introduces himself, you know, to people, you know, the ones that I, you know, I could kind of like let my guard down a little bit. When I hear them say, oh, you're named after, he's like, yeah. yeah. And then they're like, and I'm like, yeah, okay. All right. Okay. You're cool. <laughs> you're cool. You're cool. No, <laughs> you know, but, um, but yo, you know what, you know what I'm going to do? And then, then we'll, then we'll uh, sign off. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get up with, uh, I'm going to get up with, uh, my brother, Jason, Seku. I want us to get on, I want us to get on a zoom chat. Like I'm going to set that up. Okay. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. But uh, Dr. Favors, I appreciate your time. I, I like saying, I was like, doctor, doctor, doctor. <laughs> All right, my man. Love you, man. Thank you for your time. Love yeah, it. love you too. For, uh, to your listeners, man, let's keep building. Let's keep working. Let's keep striving for, for a better world, man. All right, man. Take care. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of LJ Presents. As always, you can find me on my website at ljeffreymore.com, Twitter at ljeffreymore, and on Instagram at ljeffrey.more. If you like what the show has to offer and you'd like to make a contribution, make sure to check out my Patreon page. Your contribution is always appreciated. Make sure to check back next week for another great guest. See you then.